0: This is episode 43 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 43 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellanius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we chat with Steve Barr, a theoretical particle physicist and the president of the Society of Catholic Scientists. In our conversation, we chat about the relationship between science and faith and why people of faith should not be threatened by scientific research. Let's sit down for this delightful conversation. Steve, thank you very much for coming to be with us today.
1: Well, thanks for having me on.
0: So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? Uh, Where did you do your studies? What have you been doing in the intervening years? Those sorts of things.
1: Well, I I grew up in New York City. I'm from Manhattan. I grew up in the Columbia University area. Uh, I actually went to Columbia as an undergraduate. Uh, Did my Ph.D. at Princeton. And that was 41 years ago, going on 42. So I've been in physics for a long time, Um, did a postdoc at Penn, spent five years as a uh, junior faculty at the University of Washington, was for a time at the Brookhaven National Lab. But for the last 32 years, I've been at the University of Delaware uh, in the Department of Physics and Astronomy.
0: Excellent. Well, now you are here on campus uh, and have been on campus kind of this semester. Right. You're the president of the Society of Catholic Scientists. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about the Society, how it got started. What's its mission and, and why are you here at Notre Dame? Kind of those those things all together.
1: Well, I, I'd long thought that it would be a good idea to have a, an organization of Catholic scientists, partly to show the world that there are a lot of Catholic scientists. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of religious scientists. Uh, and But the actual in, uh, impetus to do it came in 2016 when a very eminent scientist who is a convert to Catholicism was mentioning that he – his pastor had been suggesting that he start one. And I said, well, I've been thinking of that for years. So he said, why don't we do it together? So in, in the summer of 2016, uh, we started from scratch, this organization, the Society of Catholic Scientists, uh, and we now have, um, I think as of today, 1140 members in at least 45 countries uh, though most of them are in the u s at the moment um, we hope to expand throughout the world uh, so it's it's grown quite rapidly and uh, I'm here at University of Notre Dame visiting the McGrath Institute for Church Life because they have a very uh very exciting uh, program, a science and religion initiative mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I work a lot with them and uh, we have a sort of partnership so our our permanent headquarters of our or our uh, physical headquarters are going to be at Notre Dame from now on
0: wonderful uh, what are the so what 's the mission of the society
1: well the mission it 's a fourfold mission actually so the first is fellowship among Catholic scientists. This is very important because when you go into the academic world, not just science, you often often people keep their uh, personal beliefs quiet mm-hmm. um, especially if if they think that they might be out of step with most of the people around them. And so as a result, uh, and this happens frequently with religious people, and as a result, many people who are Catholics or religious in – the uh, academic world and the scientific world are unaware of each other's existence, so they feel isolated. It's not that you face hostility uh, for the most part. What you face is a sense of isolation because you think – you don't know that there are others out there who are also uh, have faith. So uh, fellowship among Catholic scientists is, is our number one mission. Second is witnessing to the world uh, that th- you can be a, a person of faith, you can be a, d- a devout Catholic and also uh, be a, a scientist. Um and then we also want to be a forum for discussion uh, among catholic scientists of uh, we're well, not just among ourselves but with theologians and philosophers about science faith issues mm-hmm. uh, and the fourth is to be an educational resource uh for the world for for lay people for journalists for pastors for catholic high school teachers and so on about science faith issues
0: wonderful what of the makeup of the society um like, are there groups that are very well represented, and others that are
1: underrepresented? Um, you mean demographically or types of science by field? Uh, uh, types of science. Well, we 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 are for natural science uh, now, so we're not. We don't have social scientists. Um, so, natural science we include the life sciences and the physical sciences. Mm-hmm. We also include math, um, and we include computer science, uh, computational science, and any fields that are closely related. So uh, biomedical research, uh, some engineering, if it has a basic science component to it. But basically, it's natural science rather than social science. We're pretty much equal. My sense from looking through our member directory is that we're probably roughly balanced between the life sciences and the physical sciences. Uh,
0: Pretty good for a group that just started three years ago. Just started
1: three and a third years ago. And – we're continuing to grow rapidly and 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 uh i th- we haven't even really begun to expand significantly in Europe and Latin America and asia uh eighty percent of our members are in the are, are u s based people uh I think that we will multiply our membership several times once we start having activities in other parts of the world.
0: Now, have you done conferences or meetups? And- we have
1: an annual conference. We okay. want the, our last one was at Notre Dame, as a matter of fact. Okay. Um, our first was in Chicago, then at Catholic U. Uh, and our next one is going to be, our 2021 is going to be at Providence College in Rhode Island. Uh, but we're hoping to start having conferences at some point in Europe, as I said. Uh, and there's going to be regional chapters we're starting to set up. Uh, and hopefully, there'll be smaller regional conferences too.
0: Wonderful. Well, let's delve a bit into the relationship between science and faith. Mm-hmm. Um, Many people believe that there's kind of a real battle between the two and that faith is fighting itself a rearguard action. As scientists continue their research into processes and makeup of the physical world, they're able to explain things that maybe to our predecessors would have been considered miraculous and thereby kind of undermine people's faith. Um, is that a fair assessment of the situation?
1: Well, there certainly is, is a battle going on. Um, it's not really between science and faith, uh, though there's a widespread perception that science and faith are opposed, that they're somehow uh, in conflict or in tension with each other. Um, but that's really not the case. It, it also has not historically really been the case. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation about scientific history. What people don't realize is that most of the great scientists – uh from the beginning of the science of modern science back in the in the 16th century up until relatively recently up until say late in the 19th century most of the great scientists were religious i mean if you look at the great figures of the scientific revolution of the 1600s whether it's kepler or galileo or descartes or pascal or boyle or or, or newton and all the great figures were devout christians so the idea that there has been this uh, war between science and religion for centuries is, is nonsense. Um, now, it's true that uh, in more recent times, in the last century and a half especially, you know, there's more unbelief appears among scientists. Uh, um, and there are many reasons for that. But uh, it's, it's not really because anything science has discovered is uh, contrary to the faith. As far as science explaining things that might have been considered miraculous, an important thing that people should realize – is that the art that the the reasons people historically believed in god were not miracles. The evidence of god if you go back to the early christian writings what the church fathers and and theologians pointed to as the evidence for the existence of god was not the miraculous. It was the orderliness of nature. It wasn't things that were not that were contrary to the laws of nature or were outside of the natural order. It was the order of nature itself. It was the lawfulness of nature that pointed to God because if there was a law, there was a lawgiver. In fact, you know, if you look at the miracles of Jesus, Jesus did not perform miracles, nor did Moses. But Jesus did not perform miracles to convert atheists to believing in God. All the witnesses of his miracles were devout Jews who already believed in God. So that wasn't – the function of the miraculous, as it were, in salvation history is not to be evidences of the existence of God. Uh, as I said, the evidence for the existence of God is the very fact that the world is orderly and lawful That's, and the fact that it exists at all. So um, – and what modern science shows us it, uh, as, as it proceeds, it's showing us – ever more clearly how orderly nature is. It's We now see the lawfulness and orderliness of nature at a far deeper level than it was ever known before. So, in fact, the argument for the existence of God is ever stronger because of the f- discoveries of science.
0: Is it a lack of evangelization?
1: Well, I think yes. I think part, part of that's part of the problem. That is, I think there has been not enough done to to – well, first of all, to – Evangelize the culture to explain to people who are not Catholic or are not religious believers to tell them about the history of science and and how to think about the relation of science and faith, but also within the church, I don't think there has been enough catechesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess both on evangelization and catechesis, there has not been enough. Now that's changing. I, I think um, I think there's now a number of initiatives. Well, the Society of Catholic Scientists is one, but the McGrath Institute. For Church Life at Notre Dame, its science religion initiative is another. But the other – the bishops are uh, aware of this, of this um, issue and I, I think we find more and more uh, Bishop Barron is doing things about uh, – on science and faith and so are other groups. So I, I think uh, things are going to get better in this regard.
0: Well, now, uh, you wrote a 2018 essay for the Church Life Journal, which is also out of the McGrath Institute, mm-hmm. our friends there, explaining that um, in physics, there's a type of modeling of the real universe. And you wrote, quote, in physics, one must often make what are called simplifying assumptions. Mm-hmm. It is necessary to do so because real physical systems are far too complex to study exactly, end quote. Now, this model that is proposed by physicists is theoretically infinitely perfect. Though, as you go on to explain, that perfection can itself be a limitation because of our limited ability to measure and even comprehend the infinite factors that make up any given real world object. You talk about a billiard ball. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we model a, a perfect billiard ball, even though a real one may have scratches and and things that would affect its its real-world kind of existence. Now, as I was reading this essay, I was reminded of the problem of analogy mm-hmm. that figured so heavily in medieval theology, the idea that when humans try to explain something about God, no matter how lofty the language we use, the difference between what we can say and what God is really like is itself infinitely vast. Mm-hmm. Um, Is that an apt similarity for the idea of the ideal world modeling that's done in physics and the language we use in theology?
1: There's some analogy there. I I would hasten to say one thing um, and that is I would distinguish between the ultimate laws of physics, whatever they may be. And most physicists in my field, most physicists believe that there is some ultimate – set of ultimate laws of physics. That's the whole that those are the laws of physics we haven't yet found them uh, or we're not sure we found them uh and those i think would be exact that is uh not just approximations to the world but uh, they would be an exact mathematical description of the physical world but in the re- in in practical terms uh when you're trying to describe any actual concrete system what even a bi- even something like a billiard ball even a single atom there's so much complexity there that you as i said you have to make simplifying assumptions uh and so you, you ne- in in reality no human being <laughs> you know yeah. can can have a complete and accurate and perfect uh description of anything in in the world around him because the world is far far too complicated and i suppose you could say there's an analogy there that just as the the, the actual concrete physical world is far too complicated for us to have a perfect description of it. We, we cannot have a perfect idea of God. Though there, the, the, with with God, the 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 reason we can't we have to use analogies is that God infinitely transcends our categories of thought. God is not a you know all, all we have direct knowledge of is creatures or things that God created and they're they're finite and uh, and so our concepts which are entirely based on created things cannot uh, cannot aptly, correctly grasp uh, the divine essence because God is infinite. Um, there's actually a better, even a better analogy from the physical world I would say. As we get deeper into physics, we're, we're getting down to things with which we have no everyday experience. So if you talk about subatomic physics, which is my field of physics. The things go on at the subatomic realm which are very counterintuitive. You know, quantum mechanics is notoriously counterintuitive. Yeah. Um, you never – though we have very good equations and we can calculate things to fantastic accuracy, at the gut level, uh, no one really has an intuitive really gut understanding of quantum mechanics because the concepts required are so alien to our everyday experience um, and so, but nevertheless, they're still about finite things. Uh, whereas with God is not only alien to our experiences that we can't, but God infinitely transcends any experience that we could ever have. And so, uh, yeah. So there's a limitation.
0: Yeah. While reading the essay, I will confess my brain was completely, <laughs> completely torn apart because I mean, you're talking about about uh, quantum. Uh, what, what a field of energy and then and then particles being created in pairs
1: well yeah the, the, you know, the basic language of our current theory of physics is something called quantum field theory, so in our, as this is our cu- current level of understanding, so there 's sort of the basic things or entities in the world are quantum fields. think of electric fields, magnetic fields, gravitational fields, and so on and um, and so when you do things at the quantum level you 're talking about quantum fields. And they're very uh, interesting and mysterious and do do funny things. So yes, you can pop out of a seemingly empty space a particle and an antiparticle mm-hmm. or the particle and the antiparticle could, quote, annihilate into various other things. Um, yeah, so there, there's strange goings on in the <laughs> – in this physical world of ours.
0: Yeah. And yet like you say, it's still – because it exists mm-hmm. – um, it's still finite.
1: Everything, yeah, it's finite. I mean, I'm not talking about finite in the sort of size. It could be, right. as far as anything we know, the universe could be infinitely large, but they're, uh, it's more, it's, they're finite in a different, it, it, God is infinite in a different sense, not in the sure. sense that he is infinitely large, but that he is, uh, transcends our categories of right. thought. So we, anything we say about God, you know, as, as the great theologian said, anything we say about God uh, falls short. It's, it can only be true in some analogical sense yeah
0: wow. well now you've made reference to your own field of study your own your own field of research and stuff tell us a little bit about what you Actually, do study and and uh, do research on. You, you list particle physics, particle cosmology, grand unified theories. There are laws that have your right. name in them. So tell us a little bit about these things.
1: Right. So I'm in a field called. Well, I'm I am retiring from active duty as a professor actually in January to devote full time to the Society of Catholic Scientists. I'm about to turn 66, so it's not too early to retire. Um, <laughs> Congratulations! Well, it's gonna be. I'm gonna be working harder in retirement right. than ever before. But when I was doing active research. Research until you know a year or two ago. Uh, my field was um, I had several major areas I worked in. One you mentioned, grand unified theories. Those have been around since the early 70s. They're, they're mathematical uh, theories which give a unified description of the three known non-gravitational forces. Uh, and, and there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that these uh, three non-gravitational forces are all deeply connected, in fact. They're fragments, if you will, uh, remnants of, of what at a deeper level is a single force, hence the name Grand Unified Force. Uh, and so I've written a lot of papers on that and a couple of them are quite well-known. Um, I also work on something that sounds esoteric. It's called CP violation. That actually has to do with, with, an, a, with the fact that nature uh, almost treats particles and antiparticles symmetrically like they're mirror images of each other. But it, there's actually a slight asymmetry there. Nature doesn't quite treat them exactly symmetrically. And that's called CP violation. And that's very important, actually, because if, if, if nature treated particles and antiparticles exactly symmetrically, we wouldn't be here because all the particles and antiparticles would have been, existed in equal numbers and would have annihilated and we wouldn't be left. There'd be no matter left to make things up. So it's a very important subject in particle physics. So I've done work on, on, on CP violation and what I just mentioned, which is called Baryogenesis, that is, how was it that in the early universe, matter got the upper hand over the antimatter so that there's more matter around, so that there's stuff left to make planets and people and so on. That's called baryogenesis. And the third thing, I guess, um, you mentioned particle, well, there's other things I work on too, um, it's not understood. There are a lot of particles in our standard model of particle physics, and and they have various properties. They, have, they are, each particle has has a mass. Nobody understands the pattern of masses of the uh, fundamental particles. Um, there's clearly a the patterns there, but no one understands them. And I've done a lot of work on trying to understand why different particles have the masses that they do.
0: Would you say that uh, your work in research and, and doing these because things, what effect do they have on on you? Steve Barr, the, the man of faith
1: well they don 't uh, I would say if anything, they strengthen my faith though my faith, as I said my, my f- to the extent that the natural world is a, gives a motive for faith it 's on very basic grounds. Um, the reasons to believe in God are not found in telescopes and test tubes I mean because two thousand years ago, there were reasons to believe, and a thousand years ago there were perfectly adequate reasons to believe before people knew any science uh, but the when you see the lawful, how beautiful, how deep the laws of physics are. I, in my field, we, we're dealing with uh, the question of what are the deepest laws of physics? That That's the name of the game in particle physics. What are the deepest laws? And uh, we the, the laws that we have unearthed, especially in the 20th century, are so profound mathematically. The equations are so sophisticated, uh, beautiful, harmonious, that one appreciates that uh, they have been they're the work of a great mind. That the, the, As I say, the, the, the universe wasn't put together with tinker toys or Legos. The, the architecture is of incredible uh, mathematical depth. And that suggests a mind at work, a very deep mind. Of course, an infinitely deep mind we know as Catholics. But uh, in that sense, I, I'm constantly – I'm constantly uh, – Put in awe of 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 the world that God has made, and I should say that's the traditional attitude. Um, back in 400 years ago, the great scientist Kepler, one of the first modern scientists, uh, was a devout Lutheran. He said, "I thank thee, Lord God, our Creator, that Thou hast allowed me to see the beauty in Thy work of creation." That was the attitude of scientists for hundreds of years, and it's still the attitude of many today. And it's the attitude of all the members of the Society of Catholic Scientists. In fact, our motto is, I think, "Research with wonder, knowledge with devotion," or something of that sort. <laughs> yeah.
0: Wonderful. And I know that you also did. I read about an award, the the uh, Saint Albert, the Great. Yes, award?
1: we, we at, a, at our annual conference, we we give an award every year, the Saint Albert Award. Um, Last uh, conference, or third, we gave it to Maureen Kondik of the University of Utah, who's a neuroscientist and uh,
0: great friend of the center. She's and one it, of our Vita Institute right. professors. Right,
1: she is yeah. a great of the, uh, friend of the CEC. And and uh, the year before that, we gave it to uh, Juan Maldacena, who's a member of our organization, who uh, may be the greatest physicist of his generation. Um, he's at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. Uh, in fact, he's in my field, particle physics, and he wrote a paper 22 years ago that is the most highly cited paper in the entire history of theoretical particle physics. Um, wow. So he's a giant, a, truly a giant in the field. Uh, he's up there on the level with Hawking and people like that. Uh, he's in that He's in that league. Wow. So uh, – and he's a member of the Society of Catholic Scientists and was gracious enough to accept the award and give a talk at our second conference. So uh, – and next um, – well, um, so we're giving an award at our next conference to uh, to a professor at uh, Johns Hopkins named uh, Lawrence Principe, who's a chemist but also a very uh, well-known historian of uh, early modern science. So uh, we have uh, an embarrassment of riches. There are a lot of good people out there we can give the award to. <laughs> Wonderful.
0: Well, now, so for those of us who are laymen, mm-hmm. uh, what are some good resources for interested layperson who, who might be interested in learning more about the relationship uh, between faith and scientific reason?
1: Okay. Well, there's a whole bunch um, of things I could mention. I'm going to be uh, egotistical and, and say – well, if, you're, if you are uh, in science, um, I, I've written a book that is – well, it's actually aimed both at professional scientists but also at the scientific layman. And It's uh, called Modern Physics and Ancient Faith. Uh, If you have a relative or a friend who's a scientist and wants to understand what religion is all about, this would be a good book to give them. Um, Another book I wrote, uh, which is a collection of essays, is called The Believing Scientist. Another book which I cannot recommend too highly is by Christopher Baglow, who is here at Notre Dame. Uh, uh, He's the head of the Science Religion Initiative here at the McGrath Institute. Uh, He wrote a book which is actually – I believe it is now coming out this month in its second – in a much revised edition. Uh, So um, the title I think is – I may get it wrong, Faith, Science, and Theology, something like that. But his name is Christopher T. Baglow, B-A-G-L-O-W. That is the first and as far as I know the only book ever written as a textbook on science and faith for Catholic schools. So it can be used in Catholic high schools, but also even in, uh, at the university level. It's a it's a brilliant book. I, everyone should go out and get a copy of that. Uh, we're trying to put more resources on our Society of Catholic Scientists website, um, which is which is well just if you Google Catholic and scientists, you'll find <laughs> us. But it's www and then all one word Catholic Scientists plural dot org. Uh, and as in the next few months, we're going to be putting up some educational material there. There are books by non-Catholics that I would recommend. There's a book by uh, Francis Collins who's uh, – though he's not Catholic but his theology is basically Catholic uh, and he's a very eminent scientist and that his book is called The Language of God and it explains how it is that he as an adult became a believer. I warn you that the appendix has some bioethics that's not uh, acceptable from a Catholic point of view. But who reads Appendices? The book itself <laughs> is a terrific book. Uh, so, and there's a lot of good books out there. Okay. Um, yeah.
0: One last question. Are there some emerging areas of scientific research that a person of faith might uh, keep an eye on? Well,
1: I, uh, probably not that a person of faith has to keep an eye on, a fearful eye on. One thing that Catholics should realize, religious people should realize – so don't live in fear that science is about to discover something radical, revolutionary that's going to t- up, overturn the apple cart. Suddenly all the reasons to believe in God are gone. They've explained why the universe exists. They've explained show that we have no free will or whatever. You will read articles in the media that are hyped. Anything you read in the science media, if you want to know how important the discovery actually was, divide by 10 because there's an enormous amount of hype. The whole p- – Uh, thesis of my book, Modern Physics and Ancient Faith, was that actually a number – I list five of the really great discoveries in the 20th century brought our picture of the world closer, much closer to a traditional religious view of the universe and our place in it than the scientific picture had been before the 20th century. So don't imagine that science, every discovery leads us away from faith. Some of them may appear to do that. Because the road of scientific discovery is a winding road. And at times the road seems to be veering away from what we believe is Catholics. But you should be confident that in the end uh, the road will lead back. And and it has in a number of major areas. has uh, When it seemed to be moving away it before the 20th century, actually uh, changed course. And, and uh, I, right now I can't think of any areas where I'd be worried yeah. about anything. Yeah. But.
0: Wonderful. Well, that is a A great positive message of hope, though, too. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, Steve Barr, thank you so much for coming to be with us, and and thank you for the work that you and the society do.
1: Well, thank you, and thank you for all the work that the CEC does.
0: Thank you to Steve Barr. You will find links to his book and the others that he suggested, as well as a talk that he gave on the myth of conflict in the show notes. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions.